so many things going on uh, in this time of year. It's easy in the middle of all those things to just get so distracted that you lose uh, the vision that God's given you for the season. And we've been in this series called Visioneering and uh, walking through the life of Nehemiah. And we're going to flip gears next week and walk into the Christmas season. And so uh, I'm very excited about that also. Uh, but we're wrapping up for right now this conversation about vision. It's been a fun uh, few weeks as we've been talking about the vision God's given us for our church and where things are going in this next season, which is very exciting. We've also been uh, talking about how do we get personal vision uh, for our lives. And we've been framing it under this conversation about visioneering. And uh, visioneering is this merger of two words, vision and engineering. And it's how do you engineer your vision? How do you get your vision from a good idea to a God idea to something that's actually happening? And so we've had that conversation and it started with a conversation uh, out of the scriptures about, uh, it's from Proverbs 29, 18, that when they're there's no vision, people perish, and that God designed us to have vision, and that we're supposed to have a dream, and God has a vision for your life, and he wants you to walk in that, and he designed you to have vision, and without vision, we perish, we wander, and it doesn't work out, and so this week, as we kind of land the plane on this series for now, I want to talk a little bit about the cost of vision, because come on, you know there's always a cost, Every time God gives you a dream, a God-inspired dream, there's always a price to pay for that. And some pay the price and some don't, and that's the difference between a vision that happens and a vision that stays a good idea. It's are you able and willing to pay the price? You know, <clears throat> it's funny. I never realized how that price really worked itself out when I was younger, but it was about, uh, I don't know, about 2006 or 2007. I was at the Bible College. It was still called Eugene Bible College then. And I was there uh, doing some project at the school and meeting with some of my, uh, out of my youth group kids that were there. Uh, I'll just be honest, they were in trouble. So I went down there to see why they got busted. <laughs> Sometimes, come on now, you got to pop a bear that thing. <laughs> and while I was down there, I was invited by <clears throat> one of the instructors who was the pastoral major uh, department uh, head. And he said, hey, you're in town. I said, yeah. And he goes, we're having a panel conversation today in whatever hour, fourth hour, fifth hour. And we have some people who are recent graduates talking to our uh, future pastoral major candidates. Would you be open to sitting in on the panel? And I was like, sure. That sounds like a thing I can do. I'll sit in on the panel. If I don't have to prepare and I get to run my mouth, I'm in. That's my primary skill set, unprepared running of my mouth. No, I'm teasing. So I go and I'm sitting on this panel and there's about six people in there, uh, all mostly recent graduates. I'm, I'm not quite a recent graduate at this point, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not old yet. Come on, somebody. And, uh, and I'm, sitting in this, uh, I'm sitting in this panel and they're have, asking questions about what was it like to go uh, from school into ministry? And as I'm listening to this pretty recent panel, it occurs to me, I'm the only one of these six people who is currently doing ministry. And they pulled this panel together of people who are recent graduates, and some of them are serving in, in some capacities at their church, but none of them have kind of actually taken the plunge and gone and done ministry yet. And so, so I end up getting grilled with most of the questions. And so they're asking me, what was it like right after school? And I said, well, right after school, I realized I didn't know anything. Since no one wanted to hire me, I went and worked for free for a year. And we, my wife and I took our, our management level jobs that we had in our uh, regular vocational world. We quit our jobs. We moved to Spokane, which I had never heard of before as a NorCal kid. We moved into someone's basement 
I had never known a house with a basement before. And I worked for free for a year while we just figured out how to actually do ministry. At the end of working for free for a year, I was so qualified for ministry that I was offered a full-time job for free. And so we went and did that. And we moved to Everett, Washington, and we worked for free for two more years. And then after that, I was doing so well at working for free that someone decided to pay me to actually do ministry, which is awesome. And we got a job uh, back in Spokane. We were working there and building, and God was increasing us in increments as it went. And I'm telling this story, and I'm on this panel, and there's four other people at least on the panel who are looking at me with utter bewilderment. How could you possibly do that? And they said, well, didn't you have, did you, you know, did you get all scholarships through school? And I laughed. <laughs> they don't give scholarships for my grades. They give warnings. <laughs> it's a whole other kind of paperwork. It doesn't come with a check attached. And they're like, didn't you, did you end up in debt? I was like, yeah, I had school loans. They're like, how are you working for free and still doing this? And I said, well, I just had vision for what God called me to do. And I stepped out to do it. And he's provided every step of the way. I said, I work at Hollywood Video. Right? Some of you uh, have to Google that, millennials, see what that is. Because <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Come on, somebody. I'm like, I work at Hollywood Video. And I use it to pay the bills and to come up with creative movie illustrations for youth group. It's a win-win. And my wife's working at JCPenney's, and she keeps us clothed. Come on now. I was skinnier, so it didn't take as much food to keep me alive. <laughs> and I just trust God, and I hear his voice, and I go. And I remember it became more of a conversation, like the class just went away, and me and the other panelists had a debate on whether or not, come on now, if you have vision and God, that's enough. And here we are taking steps and taking steps and taking steps. And I said, you know what? I don't know always how it's going to work. But somebody, come on now, has to go first. And a vision always requires that somebody go first. You're going to find yourself in situations where God's given you a vision. And everyone else is like, how is that going to work? You can't survive like that. How are you going to eat? Where are you going to live? Where are you going to stay? How is it going to work? And the crowd will come around the side of you, come on now, and grill you with the would have, could have, should have, how are you supposed to do it? But if you've heard from the Lord, somebody's got to go first. And the plan, I mean, we've talked a lot about planning. Come on now, go back and listen to the podcast. If you're like, this guy's crazy, there's no plan. We plan. But at some point, somebody's got to go first. Somebody's got to take the step. Somebody's got to blaze the trail. Somebody's got to hear God's voice and obey and walk out there and go first. And here's what I discovered. The scriptures are actually true. God is who he says he is. Come on now, faith is the key ingredient and will do what he says he will do. And it works the way the scriptures say. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in your vision, you'll go and you'll do and your heart will be there. If the vision is subsequent to your treasure, then you'll stay where your treasure is. 
whatever the thing is you value the most. If you're your treasure, come on now. Ooh, that was better than you just gave me credit for. If you're your treasure, you will not move. If the treasure is the vision God's given you, then you'll go. Then you'll go. Some of us are in the room and there's been vision that God's put in our life and we're like, I just, if some people would just go with me, it'll work. If I could just, if God, if you just give me the right team, if you just put the right people around me, if you just put the right resources around me, then it will work. Then we can go. Then I can make it happen. But you got to hear me this morning, guys. You cannot lead people any further than you're willing to go yourself. You cannot lead people any further than you're willing to go yourself. And there's people that God will put into your life and bring around you to come alongside and go with you, but you have got to be willing to go first. If you're not willing to go, come on now. No one's going with you. None of the pieces will be there. But we know it's hard to go first. Come on. Let's be real, guys. It's hard to go first. It's much nicer if someone blazes the trail. It's much nicer if someone sets up how the financing is going to work and then you go, I just want to do what they did. It's much nicer if someone else lays out the path, if someone else drives the thing there and then you can just say, yeah, I want to do all the things they're doing just a little bit easier and better. It's hard to go first. Why is it hard to go first? Because it costs us something to go first. It requires faith. It requires risk. It costs us things like our reputation. People go, you're crazy. Do you know how many people in my family told me I was crazy? You want to have a fun conversation with your in-laws? Tell them you're newlyweds and you're going to work for free for three years. That's really a good way to hit it off with the old father-in-law. Say, what? You're going to do what? It's hard to go first. It costs you reputation. It costs you resources. It costs you resources. Sometimes you've got to sell good things for just food and life and existence, trusting that God's going to bring back those things even better than what you laid down before. It costs you resources, time, and energy. It's difficult to go first. And you know this is true. It's hard to go first at your workplace. You see something that's wrong and you know you could fix it. If someone else would just step up and do it. Someone else would just take that step and do it. You're with your peers. There's nothing like a group of people who are standing around gossiping, and you're the one who knows, come on now, has some vision for your life that this isn't how it's supposed to go, and someone's got to say something, and someone's going to go first, and is it going to be you? It's hard to go first. It's a challenging place to find yourself. So here's God giving us vision and saying, who's going to go first? It's like, God, what do you really expect of me? Why don't you go first? Why don't you blaze that trail? Then I'll walk on it. Why don't you knock down all those doors and then I'll walk through there. And yet God invites us into this tension of being with us and for us, but letting us walk forward into the unknown and into difficulties and asking us to pay a cost to get to where vision has called us to be. So if you have your Bibles, turn back over to Nehemiah. We're going to get to Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to talk a little bit about this cost that occurs. And as you're turning there, I'm going to recap for you just briefly, and then I'm going to tell you why I ignored chapter 3. 
to recap, Nehemiah was cupbearer for the king. He had a cool job. His job was to taste all the food before the king tasted the food. And uh, that means he got invited to all the best parties. He got to wear all the best clothes. He got to be in all the coolest environments. He was a made man. He was known. He was popular. And he had the best job in the world unless the king got poisoned. Then he was dead. It was an interesting position because he was in proximity to power and proximity to the king in a time when the people of God were all in captivity. The Babylonians had come in and wiped them out. The Persians came in and wiped out the Babylonians and Persia now sits on the throne. Now Persia's conquered all the known land up to, come on now, Sparta. And at this time, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. The king of Persia doesn't really care if the Jews are uh, uh, away from Jerusalem. And so he allows them to go back to Jerusalem and they try to rebuild their city and their place of worship because he's in control whether you're in Babylon or whether you're in Jerusalem. So he's like, yeah, go ahead and go back. They go back to Jerusalem and for some time they're there and they try to recapture the heart of God and the mission of God to worship God. But they're having problems because the, the, the place where they worship doesn't have walls anymore. It's been run down and it's all rubble. And there are little outlying contingencies who are deeply invested in them not having a strong city there anymore. So as a result, the people of God are trying to come together and worship God, but they can't because they can't gather together because when they gather together, it makes them a target and in come these raiders and knock them out. So they're living in hiding and they're trying to come together to worship, but they can't because there's no walls. So Nehemiah is hanging out with the king, sipping the wine, hanging out, doing the, his job as the cupbearer of the king. And his brother shows up and says, hey, I've been to Jerusalem and he's like whoa what's going on in Jerusalem and he tells him this story and Nehemiah is moved to his core that the people of God cannot get together cannot worship do not live in community the way they were designed to live in community it is devastating to him to hear this and he begins to fast and he begins to pray and he begins to plan and God gives him a vision to go back and restore the walls now Nehemiah is an amazing case study because he's not a pastor He's not a rally everyone with his voice kind of a guy. He's not a priest and he's not a prophet. He doesn't have any of those skill set. He's an admin. He's a planner. And it's this beautiful picture of God moving through every skill set. And God gives him a dream. And then we walk forward through the story and we see that he has an opportunity before the king to ask for favor. And the king says, you're downcast, which was dangerous and, and scary to do because you can't be a killjoy at one of the king's parties or you just get killed for having no joy. But the king looks at him and says, what's going on with you? And he goes, the land where my forefathers were at, it's in rubble and we can't worship. And, and the king goes, well, what do you need? And he gives him a list. Like an extensive big list. I'm going to need some trees from the cedars. I'm going to need passes and letters. I'm going to need a military escort. And I'm going to need time. And he's like, how much time you need? And he gets everything in order to go forward and pursue this plan. So we move forward through the story and he begins to go to Jerusalem. And last week we saw him wandering and exploring the gates and beginning to hear the, come on now, the haters start to hate a little bit. And he's starting to see and, and kind of form his plan of what, will be. And then we get to chapter three and you can flip through chapter three and see why we're going to skip it for time's sake. It's a lot of lists, but here's the heart and the core and the crux of chapter three is that it was easy 
to motivate the people to fix the areas of the wall, the gates that were by their house. It was easy to motivate the people to fix the areas, the gates that were by where they personally lived. He had vision to help them come together corporately, but it was easy to motivate them to help themselves. I got wood, I got resources, I got all the things you need. And everyone said, oh, I'll fix the gate that's by my house. And chapter three is a series of forward progress, but not community progress. They caught the vision and they said, oh, this is how the vision helps me. So I'll go ahead and do this. But that wasn't the vision. The vision wasn't fix the gate by your house. The vision was come together, fix the wall so that we can be in community again. And God could redeem that community so we can begin to worship him the way we were designed to worship him. That's what the vision was. But they bogarted the vision. Come on now to the part that was beneficial And that's chapter three. So we pick up in chapter four and the gates have been mostly repaired now. But come on, it wasn't the vision to prepare and fix the gates. It was to build the wall. The gates have been mostly prepared now. And we see the folks that were in chapter two being critical. Now they move from critical to concerned because they're seeing some progress happen. And we see these guys in verse uh, one of uh, chapter four of Nehemiah. And it says that when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. He ridiculed the Jews. He sees some progress happening. Remember last week we learned from 90s hip hop artists that haters were always gonna hate and every vision has haters. Come on now. You can't have vision without haters. It just doesn't work that way. If you're going to move people to change, if you're going to dream, if you're going to take them to new places, there are going to be people who are critical of any progress, of any change. And here comes Sambalat, and he hears that they're rebuilding the wall, and it angers him to see this change. It angers him to see them coming together as a community. Now, we can get into uh, each of these individuals, but essentially, because Jerusalem has been in rubble, that area is now under the authority of different uh, uh, leaders that report up the chain to Persia. Persia has dominance over everything, but they're allowed areas to kind of self-govern. So the king giving permission for this people group who haven't been here to come back and be here is a direct threat to who's really in charge of this area. And Sambalet is, is an area leader. And sometimes there's a principality, sometimes there's an authority that's over an area, and he has a plan for this area. And when God shows up and says, that's not the plan for this area, here's my plan for the area, it's going to make that leader angry. And it drives anger in him. And he becomes greatly incensed. And then comes the criticism. It says he ridiculed the Jews. Now listen, you got to catch this. Vision is easy to criticize. It is easy to criticize vision. Someone comes to you and says, I got a vision. We're going to feed 10,000 people this year. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. How are you going to do that? There's no way you're going to do that, right? Vision is easy to criticize. As a matter of fact, vision attracts criticism. We're going to do lunches for kids that don't have enough food, and we're going to take on another school. And once they have enough food, we're going to take on the next school. And when they take it, then we're going to take on the next school. And we're going to see. And, and it's easy to criticize vision. Why is it so easy to criticize vision? By its nature, 
Vision is not complete. If the plan isn't always complete, vision is something that isn't quite complete yet. And when something's not complete, it's easy to poke holes in it. It's easy to say, you're never going to be able to do that. How are you going to fund it? You can't work for free. You can't give your gift away. It's easy to criticize it. Sambalat starts off the criticism. He's angry, and it comes from a place of angry. He's greatly incensed, and he ridicules the Jews. He's like, you can't get this done. Verse two, he says, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, so he's got his soldiers out there. He says, listen to this. What are those feeble Jews doing? What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? He starts punking them. He goes straight after their strength. He goes straight after their resources. They're not strong enough to do this. Have you seen these guys? They're weak. They don't finish things. Are they gonna sacrifice again? They're not faithful to God. Are they gonna bring these stones back to life? They don't have the resources they need. They are not faithful enough. They're not strong enough. They don't have what they need. Do these sound like typical criticisms to vision? Because it's not a new story. The moment you have vision, the moment we have vision, that's the story that's gonna come out. They're not strong enough. They don't have the resources. God's not with them in this. They can't do it. Verse three, Tobiah the Ammonite was who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. I love that Nehemiah made sure to record the exact smack that they were talking, right? Just to record the exact smack. This is the smack I had to put up with. This is the trash talking I had to put up with. We just got the gate up and they're like, a fox is gonna run over it and that thing's gonna fall down. The moment you step out and go first, come on now, someone's gonna be critical. Oh, that's not enough. That's not special. You're never gonna sell that for any profit. You're never gonna make that work. What do you want, a dollar? That's what he's saying. Visions are easy to criticize because they have inherent gaps. The what always comes before the how. The wall has gaps. The plan has gaps. Nehemiah has lived, listed out a plan, but it has gaps. He can't foresee everything. He had to walk around at night and see the, 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 uh, the wall. He hadn't even explored this area yet. He knew how to get a job done, but he didn't know everything it was gonna take to get this job done yet. He wasn't on the ground. He hadn't dealt with any people. He hadn't cast the vision. He didn't know who was gonna buy in and be with him. He didn't know who was gonna sell out and leave him. He didn't know any of that information. And because of that, he had a what, but he didn't fully have the how yet. He just knew it had to be done. And we talked about how vision is this thing that becomes a moral compulsion because it's from the Lord and it just has to be done. And when God gives you vision, it has to be done. But the what always comes before the how. And because of that, it's inherently easy to criticize and the critics will show up. Well, how are you gonna get that done? I don't know yet. <laughs> how are you gonna fund it? I don't know yet. <laughs> how are you gonna get people to buy into this? I don't know yet. <laughs> How many people is it gonna to take to make it happen? I don't know yet. What do you know? I know that God's calling me to do it. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna take a step and I'm gonna take a step and I'm gonna take a step and he's gonna bring the resources and I'm gonna take a step 
And it's going to take faith, and it's going to take me going out, and I'm going to have to go first. But the critics show up, and they start with some verbal criticism. And look at how Nehemiah replies. Verse 4, he says, hear us, our God, for we are despised. He's like, God, do you see how these guys are punking us? They are talking smack. They are talking big smack. And listen to what he says. This is beautiful. He says, turn their insults back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. They got right in the face of the people who were trusting you and were stepping out in faith, and they were like, this isn't worth it. You should mail it in. This guy's gonna lead you the wrong direction. This is never gonna work. And, and Nehemiah, this is awesome. I love Nehemiah. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's just a guy who loves God and has a vision. And he's like, you know what my prayers sound like? You know that guy that got in my face and said you're nothing? Tell him he's nothing. You know that guy that said you're never gonna do it? Tell him he's never gonna do it. That's his prayer. He's not like, oh God, just give us strength. and to under." No, he's like, you tell that guy to hit rocks. And you turn his life and livelihood into plunder even though we're in captivity. And may his resources end up resourcing this thing. I'm just saying, that's how he prayed. When's the last time someone was critical of your vision instead of just being like, oh, it's just my cross to carry? You said, you know what, God? I just pray in the name of Jesus that all the things they just said about me, you just, you, you let them deal with that mess. Because I'm not carrying that. Whatever just came out of them, that's their baggage. That's not my baggage. You let them deal with their baggage. They were just critical, said, you don't know enough. It's probably because they don't know enough. They were just critical, said, you don't have enough resources. probably because in their life, they haven't experienced enough resources. But I'm not letting them speak that truth into my life because I have a vision that's come from you. Just saying. That's how he prayed. Verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till that all of it reached half its height and the people worked with all their heart. This discouragement, come on now, you've been discouraged before. What does discouragement do? It weakens your heart. It steals the thunder, the mojo, the excitement, the joy when someone's picking at it when it's not done yet. You're just trying to figure it out and they're like, pick, 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 pick. And you're like, oh, and it just takes all my joy. And Nehemiah's like, not on my watch. That's not how that works here because we've heard from the Lord and we're just gonna keep on going. And suddenly his, his prayer ignites something in the heart of the people and they work with all their heart. And they get half done. Let's picture it. They're halfway there. And I love this response he has. He prays, and then he goes back to work. He prays. He goes, okay, I'm taking the heat. You're talking smack. You know what? Back at you, but in Jesus' name. And I got to go back to work. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's how we pray it. I didn't make that up. It's in the scripture. He's like, you eat those words in Jesus' name, and I'm going back to work. I think it's a mistake, and we're going to see this in Nehemiah all the way through. It's a mistake to do one but not the other, to not pray and go back to work. Sometimes we just like, oh, okay, fine, but we go back to work, and it's stolen our heart. It's 
infected our joy and our passion. It, it, the, those words were carrying them like daggers and they're poisoning our dream, but we just go back to work and there's no joy and there's no fire and there's no passion because we didn't pray the way God called us to pray to deal with those words. And then sometimes we start praying and it paralyzes us and we don't work anymore. We were working and their words caused us to hit our knees, but now we can't work again because we're too busy dealing with the weight that we feel in this prayer time that we don't actually get back up and go to work. And Nehemiah's like, listen, I just prayed and then I went back to work. I prayed and then I went back to work. And there's this tension of both and. And I wonder sometimes if we don't get stuck wondering, all right, God, are you going to do the work or do I have to do the work? Is this like, are you, in your sovereignty is like, you know, uh, 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 you know Penny's just going to fall from heaven and make this work? Or do I got to get out and, and, and beat the bushes and make this happen? And the answer is yes. Pray and do the work. Don't fall so much into one camp that it paralyzes you or steals the joy out of what God's called you to do. Are you with me, church? Does that make sense? Verse 7, when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls, Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. All the things they pointed out, all the discouragement they were trying to, to heap on them, all the shade that they were throwing wasn't working, and it fires them up. So they went a step past just talking smack. They actually plotted, verse eight, they plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. Verse nine, look at Nehemiah's response again. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Every time the resistance comes, no matter how it looks, is it physical and intimidating? Is it bullying us? First step, first response, pray. Keep the first things first. God, if you're in this, I'm still going. And he posted a guard. He posted a guard. He's like, okay, you're gonna threaten me? We're gonna post a guard. You see this hole right here? You stand in this hole. See this hole right here? You stand in this hole. You see this hole right here? You stand in this hole. You're not standing in one of the holes? Grab a shovel because we're still working. We're still working. There's still a plan and we got to make it go. He played, he prayed, and then he posted a guard. This common enemy brought these people together in ways they couldn't come together in chapter three. What's fascinating is if you, if you kind of look historically, we see these different people groups that Nehemiah is facing. And essentially they are all uh, uh, surrounding Jerusalem on different sides. Eventually, there's this picture of, you know, Sambalat's to the north and Tobiah's to the east and the Arabs are to the west. And they're surrounding the city, slowly moving in, saying, we're not sure we want this to be strong again. We're not sure we want the people of God to exist here. As a matter of fact, when the people of God first came through here, our ancestors tell us that God gave them favor and they wiped us out. And because they had the favor of God and wiped us out time and time again and drove us out, I'm not sure I want that to happen here again. And so at first, I'm just going to be critical and try to steal their mojo. But when I can't steal their mojo, I'm going to actually try to take their lives. I'm going to take their resources and take their energy. They come together, this hodgepodge group of enemies. And then something happens with the people of God. It actually brings them together to see the resistance. 
And God's able to use these enemies that are coming around to actually be a catalyst for energy to do the work. Sometimes your enemies are a catalyst for your energy to do the work. Just saying. So Nehemiah's response is to pray and to post a guard. It's both and. And it's funny. We have different reactions when we're threatened, right? Fight or flight. Some of us are just fight mode. We don't even know if we're really threatened yet. We just want to fight somebody. <laughs> like, hey, you're close. Let's fight. Right? And we're just naturally. Some of us are just naturally in flight mode. It's like, woo, deuces. Right? Woo. Let me just get away from that. It's a little hot over there, right? And Nehemiah doesn't go into fight mode or flight mode. He goes into pray and post a guard. He says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And if you want to fight, I'm not backing down. But I'm not sending people out to fight. I have a job. I ain't getting distracted even by your threats. I'm going to stay on task. I wonder how often when vision gets threatened, we move to fight or flight mode. And God's like, why don't you just pray and post the garden? Why don't you just pray and trust me and then be alert? Time and time again in the New Testament, we hear these words, pray and watch, pray and watch. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he's about to go fight a battle and he tells his guys, hey, you pray and you watch. And if anything happens, you're ready. You go to the Lord and you be prepared. He doesn't say go out and attack. He just says, pray and set the watch. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 6, 8, he's like, pray and be alert. It's just time and time again, this idea that we pray and we pay attention. We're not naive. We're not, uh, we're not disabused from the idea that the enemy does want to take us out, want to weaken us. We're, we don't think that, we're not naive enough to think that we're not going to fight any battles, that it's not going to be hard, but we don't go pick in the fight. We stay on mission and we pray and we ask God for strength and then we post up and we're ready to fight if we need to fight. Sometimes we got to pray and post up. Nehemiah 4.10. How am I doing on time? Whew. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. Remember just a few verses ago, they, were, they got halfway done and they were working with all their heart. That's when the people were being critical and Nehemiah was like there, you know, saying, oh, you got your mama jokes? How about these, your mama? Like he was back there battling them, right? The roast battle was on and he was holding his ground. Now the armies are camped outside. Now they're like, getting all stabby. That's a little different than just taking shots verbally. And it says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. In creeps the first little glimpse of discouragement. The first little glimpse of discouragement gets at. It says our strength is giving out. We're halfway done, but look at how big this job still is. They're not celebrating half. No one celebrated half of the wall. I would celebrate half the wall. That's amazing. You got half a wall? There's no celebration of half a wall. Because the vision wasn't to build half a wall. So they're not celebrating half a wall. Instead, they're looking around going, man, we're tired. And this is hard. And we don't have, there's like a lot of rocks on the ground. It's like a mess out here. And these guys want to stab us. And they've lost sight of the vision for a moment here and discouragement has cryptid. Discouragement is the enemy of your vision. You've got to ward off criticism. They start getting discouraged. Now, this is a fascinating story. I don't have time to totally break into it. Why is it specific that it's the people of Judah that did this? As a matter of fact, the people of Judah, if you flip a few 
chapters up and uh, about chapter six, verse 17 or so, you'll see this crazy reality. Tobiah, Tobiah, one of the enemies that were in there, he had actually through marriage married into kind of the ruling class of Judah. And they were integrated in ways that they weren't supposed to be integrated with people who weren't part of the family of God and their resources were flowing back and forth. And suddenly now the mission is about to actually happen. This vision that didn't seem like it could possibly happen is half done. And from inside the camp, people start turning, start, start making exceptions. And listen, there's always going to be criticism that comes from inside the camp. If you think all the criticism is going to come from outside the camp, you have not tried to pursue a vision before. It is the inside the camp vision that's more devastating, more harmful, more heart discouraging than the outside the camp uh, 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 discouragement. Come on, even Jesus had a Judas, someone inside the camp who wasn't with him who didn't take him there. So you have Judah, who should be one of the strong tribes, the tribe of King David, the kingly, the priestly, the lion, who should be firmly committed to the things of God, that tribe making deals with the other side to leverage their wealth and their personal. Remember, everyone was cool with building the wall when it served them. Suddenly now, they have some authority because they're married into this leadership and that's at risk now. There's always gonna be some Judas in the camp. Verse 11, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put them into the works. So this is Judah. He's like, everyone's tired. The tribe of Judah, not Judah the person. The tribe of, everyone's tired and there's so much rubble. Also, we heard a rumor that our enemies who we're married to and we have a relationship with, they're just gonna sneak attack us. Before anyone knows it or sees us, we're gonna be right there and we'll just kill them. The guy told you they were getting stabby. They're getting stabby. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. Fear gets in the camp. Discouragement gets in the camp. It's not gonna work. Everyone's gonna turn on us. They're gonna kill us. They're gonna get us. You know, you've heard that voice from in the camp before. There's a vision, there's a dream. Our family, what we wanna do for our family is this. And, and we're believing that God's gonna change this heart and change this life and build this relationship back. And here comes someone saying, oh, that's never gonna happen. And their family, they're on the inside. That's never gonna change. That's never, you've seen them. They're gonna turn on you. They're gonna stab you. The moment you trust them, they're gonna steal all that away from you. And it starts breathing discouragement. The job's half done. And they're breathing and breeding discouragement and rumors. I don't know how many visions died over just the, the rumors of what might happen. You can't move any further. What if? And it steals away hearts. Hearts that were full become weak. So what's, Nehemiah's response, verse 13, he changes the plan. Therefore, I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall and the exposed places. And listen to this, posting them by families. That's a fascinating thing. I'll get to that in a second. With their swords, their spears, and their bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. This is a fascinating picture of leadership. He goes, the only thing that's really motivated you to follow through all the way is when you had to protect your own. Let me make sure you understand your own is what at stake. 
and your heart is weak right now, how strong will you fight when you're standing next to your kids and someone wants to take out your kids? How bold and encouraged will you be, Mama Bear, when someone comes after one of yours? You don't think you got strength for the fight? You don't realize what's at risk. So let me recalibrate what's at risk so you can see it. You're at risk. Your family's at risk. The dreams God has for you is at risk. So let me post you up according to families and see if that doesn't stir some power in you so you wake up, church, and fight for something. That's what he's looking for. And then he says, not only do you know what you're fighting for, you got to remember who God is and what he's done and who you're fighting with, who's on your side. We're here in this moment at this place and we made it this far, far because God has been so good. The wall's only half done. The vision's only halfway there, but God has been so good to take us to this point. Don't you think, isn't it possible that God who's been faithful to get you this far might just take you the rest of the way? Don't let fear come in and steal this. Don't let discouragement come in and steal this. He changes the strategy. He sets them up so they can defend themselves while they work. He realizes that they'll fight when they're invested in the person that they're fighting for. They're no longer fighting for a wall. They're fighting for their family. They're no longer fighting for a wall. The wall isn't the vision. The vision is the people of God able to come together and worship God in community again. And the wall is the tool that will make that happen. When they were fighting for a wall, there's too much rubble. It's discouraging. It just discouraged me out. Instead, they're fighting for their family and for their lives and for their God. It changes everything. So the work resumes. When our enemies hear that we're aware, verse 15, of their plot and that God has frustrated it, we return, then our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall and went back to work. Verse 16, listen to this. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears and swords and, and bows and armors and the officers posted themselves beside, behind all the people of Judah. I love this. The people of Judah who were whiny and kind of the officers stood behind them and said, keep working. Keep working. The officers posted up and said, you guys aren't going to turn on this thing. You guys got to be invested. That's hilarious, right? Um, <laughs> people of Judah who were building the wall and those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. I'll stop right there because of time. I want to get you this picture though because this is kind of fun. Maximus, come help me. You're right here. I want you to hold that with one hand. I want you to hold this with the other. Here, you can kind of stand up where people can see you. Now listen, this is the picture that Nehemiah sets up. He says, every single one of you is going to be ready to fight in one hand and ready to work in the other. You're going to have your sword in one hand and your hammer, your working tool in the other. And this is going to be a picture of how vision gets done. Okay? Because we've got to accomplish what God's called us to accomplish. Now, I love the picture because, because God... In this moment, they have physical, tangible enemies to fight. But we recognize, come on, church, that our battles aren't flesh and blood. That we fight against principalities. We fight against an enemy that wants to destroy our culture, our community, and the people of God and wants to dismantle that. And we recognize that we don't carry, come on, a physical sword. We carry the sword of the Spirit. We recognize what we have to carry in one hand, but we can't stop working either. And so we get a picture of overcoming and fighting and paying the cost of what God's called us to do when the people of God decide that the vision is worth fighting for and worth working on. And they keep going. 
And they keep going. And when the attacks come, they swing the sword. I got you. They go to the word of God and they battle. And when it's time to work, they swing the hammer and they keep going. And you want to know how vision's going to get done? You want to know how Discover Church is going to get born? You want to know how the impact into our neighborhood and community are going to happen? You want to know how all that's going to break through? It's going to happen when the people of God recognize what they're fighting for isn't a church. They discover that church isn't a Sunday morning experience. It's a people of God who are coming together to follow Jesus. That we realize that's what they're fighting for. And the mama bears and the papa bears look out and go, our family is worth fighting for. And the family of God is worth fighting for. And they get ready to fight and then they go to work and when that happens come on now it, it rekindles the heart and they accomplish what God's called them to accomplish would you stand with me I got so much more we're like we like haven't even cracked into some of the things I wanted to crack into could you why don't you stand stand up a little higher because you're just too intimidating right there perfect <laughs> My, my situational awareness will not allow me to turn my back to him that close with a sword. <laughs> Come on now. Here's the reality, guys. Here's the reality. If we stick with the vision God's given us, we'll accomplish what he's called us to do. There's some other truths I want to just, I'm going to throw a couple quick truth bombs at you because they're good and you need to hear these things, but we don't have any more time to just unpack it. But I want you to see what Nehemiah did here because it was brilliant. The vision didn't change. The plan changed time and time again. At first, he just said, go start fixing the wall. And then everyone only fixed what they were wanting to fix. He's like, well, that doesn't work. Move out and spread out and cover all the wall. And they started working and went good for a little while. <clears throat> then they got scared and they stopped working. He goes, okay, now I'm going to reassign you according to families. And I'm going to put the, the uh, officers behind this tribe because they're getting a little sketchy. And we're going to, like, he completely redeploys the team time and time again. Now, listen, the vision you should be stubborn about. The plan, flexible, right? God's going to do what he's called you to do. And he's going to take you on that path. But you're going to have to be flexible with your plan sometimes. Think about David, right? David, you're going to be king. Okay, great. How's that going to work? I don't know. I'm sure he had a plan that he came up with. And his plan at no point ever was, I'm going to have to slay a giant. But the plan changed. In comes Goliath. And Goliath is talking smack. And God uses and leverages that enemy and turns that opposition into his promotion. He turns that person who is resisting him into his pathway to the promotion that he's supposed to take. And the plan changes. And you see it time and time and time again through scripture. The vision doesn't change. The call of God doesn't change. But the plan changes all the time. Some of us are frustrated because we're like, but that's not the plan. Nehemiah's a planner. Come on, my type A planners. You got to be flexible with your plan. Okay, set the plan, make the plan, and then be flexible with the plan because the vision is more important than the plan. And the plan might look like we got to get the wall up, but the vision is we got to get the people of God together worshiping again. And that's the vision. And so the wall is going to come in stages and be a part of it, but that's not the vision. And I'm going to say one more thing because I just, I have to say this because it's just so important. Some of you are struggling because you're like, I don't know what my personal vision is. And I want you to just see how, how much opposition was coming around the vision. 
and recognize how much discouragement was coming. And maybe your job in this season is to just be an ambassador and an agent of encouragement to somebody else's vision while you're waiting for God to give you your vision and praying and working as God's gonna give you vision and then make sure, come on now, this is for somebody, make sure that you're not stealing and bringing discouragement into the vision that God's put for someone else. I'm just saying. That's just another little shot because some of you need, someone needed to hear that. Your job, you don't have the spiritual gift of discouragement, okay? Knock it off. Knock it off. Go bring some encouragement. Go bring some encouragement and breathe some life. Jesus, I am so grateful for this family of God that you've assembled for such a time as this. There's a reason we're, we're, we wanted to be together in this season because you're pouring vision into us and you're giving us new passion and a new picture of what must be and what can be, how to reach into a neighborhood here in the South Hill and call people out of isolation and into community to gather to become a people of God, family that we would fight for, that we would work for, that we would come together around and call so that we could be the people of God you called us to be so that none would perish, but everyone have an opportunity to move from death into life because of what you've done. And if you, God, are in it, then we tell the, <laughs> the critics, be on your own head. We tell the resistors, we're gonna pray and we're gonna post up. And when it's time to fight, We'll grab the sword of the spirit. We'll grab your word and the truth that comes with it. And we'll grab whatever tool you've given us, whatever gift, and we'll work with everything we've got and we'll fight the battle you called us to fight because it's worth it. Because the picture of you bringing people who were far away from you and inspiring them to follow you, experience new life in you, and then go and change our world is worth it. It's worth giving our life for. And someone's got to go first. God, may it be me. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen. And amen.